Welcome to our first ever West Virginia Week, an occasional podcast that looks back at major stories of the week. I'm Eric Douglas. It was a busy one with a look at four leading Republican candidates for governor, severe flooding from rains on Monday and Tuesday, and the ongoing battle at West Virginia University over which faculty members to keep, including University President Gordon Gee. We'll jump right into it with a couple short stories in the daily news. West Virginia University President Gordon Gee will face a vote of no confidence on September 6th. Chris Schultz has more. The University Assembly will meet September 6th at noon to vote on resolutions of no confidence in Gee's leadership, as well as to halt the academic transformation process. The Assembly is open to all faculty members across WVU's three campuses, with faculty from Kaiser and Potomac joining remotely. The primary meeting will take place at the Center for Creative Arts in Morgantown. WVU Faculty Senate Chair Frankie Tack estimated around 700 faculty members will need to attend to form a quorum. We are requesting that unit leaders support faculty in providing out-of-class assignments to their students and canceling class so they can attend the assembly. An online student petition supporting the resolution started Monday has already garnered more than 160 signatures. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Chris Schultz in Morgantown. For more on this story, visit our website at wvpublic.org. The Pleasant's Power Station resumed operations August 27th for the first time since the end of May. As Curtis Tate reports, its future won't depend on coal. For the past several weeks, the Pleasant's Power Station has been idle, its cooling towers emitting no steam high above the Ohio River in Pleasant's County. On Wednesday, the 1,300-megawatt power plant was reactivated, achieving a goal of state and local officials who wanted to preserve its jobs and tax revenues. At the Greenbrier Resort, Governor Jim Justice said Omnis Technologies would invest $800 million into the plant and eventually run it on hydrogen. The Pleasance Power Plant, a power plant, a coal-fired power plant, is taking new life. According to the governor's office, Omnis will create 600 new jobs in addition to saving the 160 jobs at the existing power plant. It's not clear when the plant will be converted to hydrogen. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Curtis Tate in Charleston. The four leading Republican candidates for governor in 2024 joined in a political forum Thursday. Randy Yoey has our story. Speaking before the West Virginia Chamber of Commerce Summit at the Greenbrier, the candidates were asked about declining population, size of government, education, and tourism. Attorney General Patrick Morrissey said he was studying what works in neighboring states and would implement that information in a first 100-day plan. We're going to make sure that on the issue of taxation, on the issue of regulation, on the issue of licensing, on the issue of workforce, West Virginia is going to win against all those states. Candidate Chris Miller owns the Dutch Miller Auto Group. Miller said the state needs to improve its technological efficiency and leverage its rich natural resources. We have an abundance of coal. We have an abundance of natural gas. We also now have the potential for nuclear. And we have this incredible amount of water. Why don't we leverage our natural resources and become the state in the union that has the cheapest power in the country and use that as the foundation for all of our economic growth and development? House of Delegates Judiciary Committee Chair Moore Capito described himself as an architect of the legislative supermajority and said local leaders know best. When I'm governor, we're going to start off the day one by entering onto an engagement tour where we go to every single local and county government and talk to them about what they need. 
Secretary of State Mac Warner said he was the sole veteran and teacher in a race where he has the widest range of experience. I'm an Eagle Scout, graduate of West Point, WVU College of Law. I hold two master's degrees. I have lived a life of service both in the military and with the U.S. State Department. The 2024 West Virginia primary is May 14th. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Randy Yowie in Charleston. And now we'd like to highlight a few of the feature stories we shared this week. First, the historic flooding in central and southern West Virginia washed away houses and vehicles and caused damage to roads and homes. Brianna Haney has the story. Slaughter, Witcher, Fields, Kelly, and Horsemill Creeks were hit the hardest as storm cells dumped inches of rain onto surrounding mountains. The water brought debris with it as it fell onto the creeks. As the debris built up, it dammed up the streams, many times under a bridge. That's what made a lot of the flooding so bad, when the water had nowhere to go. It went to the surrounding area, where people's homes and farms and cars were. Mammoth got the most rain. That is probably right there. That's Ray Lyon. He showed me a bucket he had put out right before it started raining. There wasn't nothing in there. That's a lot of water. The flood water came within five feet of his house. When I met him, he was pumping water out of Kelly Creek to clean the river sediment and mud off his driveway. The road in front of his house was one of the areas where the water accumulation was the deepest along Kelly Creek. He says there was a line of cars outside his house turning around because they couldn't pass through the water. It just come within two hours, it just kept coming. And I walked around trying to keep them, them logs, see these logs and yeah. stuff, out of the road, so, and a lot of people couldn't get through. All that was, oh, it was terrible. His acre-wide vegetable garden had completely flooded and was still bogged down with water. See them pole beans? The see the water come down through here, come down through there, through here. Uh, See, this is malate corn, and that's uh, malate tomatoes right here. Down Kelly Creek, where it meets with Horse Mill Creek, in the town of Cedar Creek, crews worked Tuesday to lift debris out of both waterways and to level the areas that were flooded when the water breached the banks. Ken Barton was one of the workers dressed in a bright yellow t-shirt and reflective overalls. I was the mayor myself for 12 years. But today, he is directing excavators and dump trucks along the creek and flooded area. These are our people. We have to come up and help. This flood didn't do much damage where he was working. Most of the area where the water flowed was a gravel parking lot, although all the gravel got washed away, and now it's just a muddy bog. It came out this way because this is a low-lying area. Uh-huh. You can see where all the mud and everything is. And the water came out this way, pushed all this stuff over here. With rain in the forecast Tuesday evening, Barton says he is praying that the rain doesn't cause more flooding in the area. We're praying that it goes somewhere else this time, but not up Slaughter's Creek or Witcher's Creek or any of those other places because they had enough yesterday. We're lucky compared to what happened to them. I know people lost their houses. and Lots of homes were lost and more were damaged. Over the course of the storm Monday, nearly 60 homes were washed away and there were 22 water rescues. Some towns like Winifred saw streets turn to rivers. Access to these towns is still difficult and some areas are completely shut off to traffic after floods and mudslides block the roadways. The damage assessment process is underway 
and officials are working with FEMA and other national and state agencies to get money back to the communities to help with recovery and cleanup. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Brianna Heaney in Cedar Creek. West Virginia's House of Delegates Chamber has turned from a historic room of legislative decision-making to a renovation worksite where the decisions are on paint swatches and desk stains. Randy O has this story. The sound one often hears from a busy House chamber comes with a ding. Those in favor of passage of the bill will vote aye. Those opposed will vote no. The clerk per the machine. But after the recent special session came the renovation session. Now it's not a statement and ding, but the pound and ring of hammer and nail. Designed by legendary Capitol architect Cass Gilbert and first opened for debate in 1932, the House chamber has not had a full renovation since 1995. Until now, House Clerk Steve Harrison says this $2.3 million facelift will freshen peeling chamber walls and give delegates something new to tread on. We're doing new carpet. We are painting. We are refinishing the desks. Those are the main items. We're also getting new chairs for the delegates. Uh, so it will be the, the color scheme of the paint will stay the same. The carpet will still be predominantly red, but it will have a pattern in it, which we think will wear better and uh, you know, show dirt less. Harrison says the renovation also highlights the long-continued tweaking of a never-quite-acoustically-right chamber sound system. We would get complaints from delegates. I think sometimes certain parts of the room would be a challenge, just, just uh, certain areas it was easier to hear than others. We have, through the years, there, there were sound panels on the walls, then there were fewer sound panels, and we put some back up. So uh, we've, the, the sound has been a challenge through the years. The last house chamber renovation 28 years ago was a few years into the seven-term delegate tenure of now Senator Charlie Trump, a Republican from Morgan County. Trump says that renovation led to the eventual elimination of some in-chamber relics and practices. The chamber featured... Uh brass spittoons on the aisles and the members smoked there so now uh, most often they they went to the back to that vestibule where you enter you know the house chamber from the, uh, the, the rotunda the main hall Furniture finisher Brian Richards is hand sanding all 100 of the near 100 year old delegate desks Richard says it's challenging to match the stains and hide the blemishes. It depends on how much they've been beat up and scratched. And Maybe with some legislators banged down a bit. <laughs> yeah, looks like it on some of them it does, yep. Trump says he waxes nostalgic thinking about the now 100 desks and delegates in the House chamber compared to just 34 in the Senate. I loved my service in the House of Delegates. I absolutely did. Uh, it is, um, it was and still is sometimes like the Wild West, but, uh, you know, in, in, a, in, the, in a good way. Harrison rephrases that Wild West concept with a bit more temperate term. It's very lively because of the number of members and the, the different personalities you have. You know, in the House you get such a variety of uh, positions, opinions, personalities. The chambers are approximately the same size and we have 100 desks in ours and they just have 34, so uh, um, it is a little more crowded on our side. 
Harrison expects the house renovations to be completed by December 1st. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Randy Yowie in Charleston. And now to two stories about the workforce in West Virginia from our radio series, Help Wanted, Understanding West Virginia's Labor Force. Staffing shortages place an immense strain on the entire health care system. They leave hospitals and medical centers overwhelmed and unable to provide optimal care for patients. Appalachia Health News reporter Emily Rice has our story. While nursing shortages are critical, with 40% of hospital staff made up of nurses, according to the West Virginia Hospital Association's 2023 Workforce Report, there are 11 healthcare professions in need of staff across the state. These professions are divided into four broad categories in the report, nursing, diagnostic imaging, medical laboratory, and respiratory therapy. Together, they have a nearly 19% vacancy rate. Jim Kaufman, president of the West Virginia Hospital Association, said workforce issues are pervasive throughout hospital staffing, from clinical positions to environmental services, nutrition, and cafeteria food service. And one of the challenges that we face, unlike other industries that are also facing workforce issues, we can't tell the patient to go home at the end of the day. If we're short-staffed, you can't say, okay, go home and come back tomorrow. And they're there 24-7. Tell me one other industry that when they're short-staffed, and just say, okay, we're not going to serve these tables. Patients are still showing up. Diagnostic imaging aids in medical decision-making and delivers life-saving treatments. Medical laboratory professionals process samples for diagnosis, treatment, and prevention of disease. It is a critical part of care, with an estimated 60 to 70 percent of physician clinical decisions based on medical laboratory results. Respiratory therapists administer all types of respiratory therapy and diagnostic procedures. West Virginia has a particularly large need for respiratory respiratory therapist due to high rates of respiratory illness. We need them all. And it's not just clinical positions that you'll hear the hospitals talk about. These were the 11 most critical positions that were identified. And we're really trying to figure out working with higher ed and others. And we've been fortunate in West Virginia, the governor's office, higher education, and the legislature has been very supportive of looking at some of the challenges. We need to look at all opportunities Kaufman said it is important for the public to understand how many job opportunities exist in a hospital setting. So I really think we just need to show people there is great opportunities in healthcare across the board, and we just need to show those opportunities and also recognize from a policy side, we need to make sure we have the resources to pay them fairly and help keep them in the state. According to Kaufman, the West Virginia Hospital Association is licensed for 6,500 beds. Due to staffing shortages, they can only offer 4,500 beds to West Virginia patients, causing delays in procedures and care. Because there's fewer beds upstairs, there's fewer facilities available for long-term care and post-acute care, there's fewer EMS to transport the patients, so the whole healthcare system is running into problems with staffing, which directly impacts patients' ability to receive timely care. While the chaos of the public health emergency and the COVID-19 pandemic may have calmed, the healthcare industry faces further challenges with an aging population in West Virginia. So healthcare is no different than when you look at a lot of industries across the sector where your more seasoned professionals are deciding to retire early or cut back the hours that they're willing to work. And just because of the demographics here, specifically in West Virginia, we have a much older population. They're either retiring early or relocating or leaving. We don't have the same number of young folks filling those ranks. So that's creating another pressure on the industry. For Appalachia Health News, I'm Emily Rice in Charleston. Appalachia Health News is a project of West Virginia Public Broadcasting.
with support from Charleston Area Medical Center and Marshall Health. Teaching is the career that all other careers are built on, but recently West Virginia has struggled to fill vacancies in classrooms. Chris Schultz continues our Help Wanted Understanding West Virginia's Labor Force radio series, looking at the struggle to keep the state's schools staffed. Sitting in his office in Morgantown, Monongahela County Superintendent Eddie Campbell reminisces about a problem he used to have, too many applicants. We posted an elementary position 10 years ago. It wouldn't have been, it wouldn't have been unlikely to get 60 applicants uh, for one elementary position. But things have changed. Campbell says now he's lucky to get a third as many people applying. That is even exacerbated, really, when we start talking about these critical positions. Uh, math, high school science, foreign language, special education. We're talking single-digit applicants uh, for these posted positions. And, and many times, even we're, we're getting applicants that aren't qualified by certification, and we might only have one or two applicants for a math position. For the last several years, West Virginia has come up against a difficult issue. The West Virginia Department of Education estimated that last year there were some 1,500 vacancies in certified teacher positions in the state. Campbell says he and other educational leaders have to increasingly rely on long-term substitutes to fill in the gaps. But the issue is not unique to West Virginia. The National Center for Education Statistics reported in early 2022 that 44 percent of public schools nationally had full or part-time teaching vacancies. A variety of issues have contributed to the decline, including pay, added responsibilities, and public perception of the teaching profession. Hans Fogel is the public information officer for Jefferson County Schools. He says the COVID-19 pandemic amplified and accelerated issues that already existed. Anecdotally over COVID, we saw the great retirement mm -hmm. where anyone who was eligible for retirement did so. Yes. Uh, part of that is because you had to adapt yeah. uh, at a moment's notice to an entirely new way of teaching, new way of doing school. The burnout was significant. The great retirement trend played out across the workforce, but those close to retirement are not the only ones leaving the teaching profession. A national survey of teachers conducted by Merrimack College in 2022 found that just 12% of teachers are very satisfied with their jobs, with more than 4 in 10 teachers saying they were very or fairly likely to leave the profession in the next two years. Campbell says one thing that has changed significantly since he started working is just how much is expected of teachers. When I came up through the ranks, it was, we're going to teach kids to read, we're going to teach kids to do some math and build some relationships. He calls these increased responsibilities mission creep. Campbell says many of the new responsibilities, such as suicide prevention, eating disorder prevention, and now security, all come with mandatory trainings. There are many, many legal requirements. I was on a call today with the state superintendent and we were talking and discussing the sheer number of required professional development and training that our professional educators are required to do on an annual basis. School systems are having to front load professional development days before school even starts to train our teachers. Dale Lee is the president of the West Virginia Education Association. He and others say the number of requirements sends the message to educators that they aren't trusted. When the legislature wants to micromanage everything that you do in the classroom, no one wants to go into education. Many of our colleges have seen dramatic decreases in the number of students that are going into education. So we have to make it attractive, both financially and, and with respect. 
Lee, who taught math for decades before moving to the WVEA, says no one knows students and their needs better than the teacher in front of the classroom, and those needs are increasing. That's in part because of the state's high opioid use and its impact on students' families. Teachers are becoming the caregivers, the pat on the back, the loving person in front of those kids. A lot of times they're the only kind words the kid gets during the day is, is from the educators. You become a, a social worker, you become a nurse, just a litany of things that the family unit used to take care of. And now the, the, the educators being asked more and more to, to address those issues. Melissa Campbell is a fourth grade teacher in Ritchie County. She's been teaching for 11 years and agrees that the job has become harder in recent years in no small part because of the mental health requirements of students. The children are so different now and their lifestyles are so different, their traumas are so different, their struggles are so different that we are trying to be everything they need mentally, emotionally, physically, educationally. And to do that, it's impossible. She says schools need more resources to address students' mental health needs. Outside work, Campbell also feels the pressure of public perception. She says growing up, being a teacher commanded a certain level of respect. But these days, she's sometimes unsure whether to tell people what she does for work. Now it's very scrutinized in public. It's very open. Whether it's social media or the news, you're going to see education across the board being thrown in some way in a negative light. So I think it got too hard for people because you're taught to keep that down and, you know, keep peace and maintain your sort of like shield. But it's sometimes hard to try to do that. The shortage is not limited to teaching positions. In the same report from the National Center for Education Statistics, it was found that 49 percent of public schools reported at least one non-teaching staff vacancy in 2022. Rachel Ringler is the Human Resource Service Coordinator for Jefferson County Schools. We are, are in desperate need of substitutes for aides, for cooks, custodians, um, secretaries, general maintenance. Pay is a factor both for teachers and staff. According to the most recently available data from the National Center for Education Statistics, West Virginia had an average teacher salary just over $50,000 in 2021, the fourth lowest in the country and $15,000 below the national average teacher salary of $65,000. For many educators, low pay is just the most visible symptom of a much larger issue, a lack of value and respect. But despite setbacks, it continues to be not only a vocation, but a passion for most. I still think education is one of the most important, I want to call it a job, but it's, it's my life. Todd Seymour is the principal at Preston High School. For him, the issue boils down to what society prioritizes and rewards. With as much as we pay entertainers and we, we pay teachers, minimal. A lot of teachers have second jobs. You know, so again, if you want to talk about one of the reasons they're leaving, because some of them have to get second jobs to raise a family. Ringler agrees that all school workers need to be recognized for the work they do. We're talking a lot about a lot of negatives and not having, but I think we need to turn that and praise all the teachers, all those aides, all the bus drivers, the cafeteria ladies who we've had here with us for, you know, for several years and, and honor them. As it stands, the dwindling prestige and pay of education as a career has a knock-on effect the profession will be feeling for years. But efforts are underway to try to turn the tide in favor of the next generation of educators. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Chris Schultz in Morgantown. Next week, Chris Schultz will take a look at what's being done to address those staffing issues. 
The 44th West Virginia Italian Heritage Festival is gearing up for a full weekend of activities this Labor Day holiday weekend. Caroline McGregor reports. The streets of Clarksburg are about to fill up with music, dance and authentic Italian food and drink for this year's 44th annual West Virginia Italian Heritage Festival. Since 1979, the colorful three-day street festival has celebrated Italian culture and heritage in the Mountain State. One of the largest Italian-American populations is located in the north-central part of the state. Since then, it has grown into one of the top 100 events in North America, including Canada and Mexico. Thousands of visitors pour into downtown Clarksburg over Labor Day weekend when blocks of streets are closed off to traffic for the event. The royal court of Regina Maria, Regina meaning queen, and Maria the name of the first queen of Italy, is crowned during the opening ceremony. The festival culminates with a traditional festival ball with highlights that include an annual 5K run and West Virginia Italian Heritage Festival golf tournament and pasta cook-off. This year's Regina Maria is Delaney Wells of Charleston, who gets to wear a striking red dress for the celebration. She's known for having this huge red dress. I remember looking at it when I was a kid and seeing her on the flow. I mean, it was just like this huge ball of red, but like, it's so beautiful. And there's a huge court that she has. Oh my gosh, there's so many like young kids on the court. There's a minor court, a junior court, and then maids of honor. And actually my cousin is a maid of honor this year with me. To be chosen as Regina Maria, Wells said she sent the festival board a letter outlining her Italian heritage, experience and interests. And then I had uh, an interview with them. I had a Zoom call on Super Bowl Sunday and each person on the board just asked me different questions. They asked me if I have any memories of the festival, what I love about being Italian, what uh, I'm doing right now in school, what my goals are in the future. And then the next day they emailed me back and they sent me a letter of congratulations. After hearing the news, Wells told her family and set about preparing for the event. I mean, they're so excited. My mom went to the first one in 1979 when she was, I think she was 12. So there's a picture of uh, my grandma braiding her hair and then she and I recreated it when I was about 16 and we took a picture of her braiding my hair at the Italian festival. Like, I've been there ever since I was a little kid. I think I only didn't go because of COVID and then I was at college, but that was when like, the whole world was messed up, so I couldn't go. For her role as Regina Maria, Wells must attend all the festival events. I include people, and there's so much, like, I, I've probably said dancing with kids like a million times, but that's what it is. Like, I really do dance in the streets with all the children and all the people attending. Along with Italian bocce ball games, there's the annual pasta cook-off where people share compelling stories about their ancestors. I mean, maybe when I was a little younger, it was people who had come from Italy cooking food, but now it's their children, their grandchildren who are there. Because so many people, I know one of the women who runs the event, her name is Rose Mazza. She was born in Italy. So I guess like talking about the food, like it's more than just like your pizza that you get at like takeout or just a little more real and really tasty. They have really good food there. Each year, the festival pays special tribute to outstanding Americans with public awards and recognitions. Recipients have included Governors John D. Rockefeller and Cecil H. Underwood, Leland Byrd and Senior Status Judge Daniel L. McCarthy, as well as A. James Manchin, uncle of current U.S. Senator Joe Manchin. Wells and her court will ride on floats in Saturday's Grand Parade that will feature Clarksburg Mayor Jim Alfrigio, among many other dignitaries. 
For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Caroline McGregor. Delaney Wells is a journalism major at the University of Kentucky, and she interned this summer with the West Virginia Public Broadcasting Newsroom. That's it for West Virginia Week. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you back here next week. As always, you can find these stories and more at wvpublic.org. I'm Eric Douglas.